All right, y'all, we're continuing the Holier Than Thou sermon series, uh, and this morning we're going to be going over to John 15. John 15, so if you want to grab your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, uh, or grab your app, that works too. If you're using one of our Bibles, where you're going to go over to page 901 to John 15. While you're flipping over there, um, I, uh, I want to reflect on the virtues of the slinky. Do you guys love the slinky as much as I do? No. Well, see if we can fix that. The slinky's awesome. It's the original fidget spinner. Uh, it was absolutely um, revolutionary in its, in its day and continues to be a classic of children's toys and a staple of my distraction. These things are fun. You know why? Because they're like full of energy, full of kinetic energy. They're just playful. Like if you have one in your hands, you can't help but like, like play with it. It just, it bounces back, right? Um, if, if, if your house was stairs, you can let it loose, right? And watch it walk down the stairs and it sometimes doesn't make it. So you go back to the top and you try it again. They're just fun. All right, so, so here's the metaphorical tie-in. God designed you to be like a slinky, okay? Um, joyful, playful, resilient. You can get stretched, but you bounce back. You can maybe get an unexpected bounce, but you're good. See, the slinky, in a lot of ways, I think is like the human heart, at least the way it was designed to be. It was designed to stretch and to bounce and then, and then to find its resiliency again. And, and um, when we're kids, I think a lot of times, that's, that's why we think of kids' toys as being so fun. It's like an idyllic time of bouncing and playing and bouncing back. The problem is we get older. And as we get older, I don't know, Life's a little bit more like this all the time. Like, that's not horrible. But for us, like, like at one time, this was rested, right? Resilient, ready to go, full of potential energy. After a little while, that's rested. You know, like school, classes, homework, relationships, friendships, kids, jobs, right? And then pretty soon that's rested. And we're just always under tension. And, and when we rest, it's maybe that. And then it goes right back to this. And pretty soon, we lose our resiliency. We lose our ability to bounce back. I only have two slinkies, so I don't get to destroy it, but we did this in the first service. It was fun. But this is what ends up happening. Like, you get so stretched out, you don't know how to bounce back. Like, you get to a point where there's not enough rest. Like, taking a day off, it's like, okay, I get a little bit of a break, but you don't come back any more resilient. You don't come back any more rested, right? You can take a vacation. You can try to shift responsibilities. And the problem is, this is often what ends up happening in our spiritual lives as well. I was having a conversation with some new friends on Friday night we had over for dinner, and, 
And we were just talking about how in our experience, a lot of people who go to church are just tired. They're stretched. They're, they're church people are not always, I don't know if this is going to surprise you, but church people are not always the most joyful people. They're often some of the most faithful. They're hard workers. They keep showing up because it's the right thing to do. They keep doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But after a while, they're not doing it because of joy. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have. Where I'm, I'm doing the right things, but I feel disconnected from the right energy. I'm faithful. I'm working. But I can't seem to regain the resiliency, the joyfulness, the buoyancy, the playfulness. There are times in my Christian life where I just feel beat up by my failures. There are times in my Christian life where I feel like um, I just can't defeat a besetting sin. There are times in my life where I'm just sick of people. You ever think that? Man, Christianity would be a whole lot easier without a bunch of Christians. Wouldn't that be nice? Right? All those people who disagree with you, all those people who challenge the way you think, all those people who vote for people you don't like, and they just exhaust you and they annoy you, and sometimes they're rude to you, and sometimes they're mean to you, and sometimes you're mean to them. Sometimes you have to put up with their weakness and even confront them because they've sinned against you or hurt you in a way that wasn't appropriate, and sometimes they have to confront you. Wouldn't life be a whole lot easier without them? Couldn't we be a whole lot holier if we didn't have all these unholy people around us? constantly provoking us, right? Wouldn't it be nice if all I had to worry about was, was you know, getting up and reading my Bible in the morning and, and praying and, and, you know, that's the fantasy we tell each other, or at least tell ourselves. Here's the thing. The Christian life, the buoyancy, the resilience, the energy, the playfulness of the Christian life, it doesn't come from how well you're doing in the Christian life. It comes from how well you're rooted in the energy of the Christian life. And the energy of the Christian life is love. How well you are rooted in love determines how resilient you are in life. Um, there's a, the big idea for this morning, the big idea for our sermon this morning. It doesn't seem like much, honestly, when I say it. Um, and it's, it's a little thing. So here's the thing. It's, it's an epiphany for me. You guys know epiphanies, they're, they're not big things you've never seen before. Epiphanies are little things that you, you see in a new light, but because you see them in a new light, it changes everything about, around them, right? Here's the epiphany that I had. Holiness is relational. You're like, okay. <laughs> holiness is relational. That was revolutionary. Once I saw what that meant, holiness is 
relational. It's not performative. It's not about what I do. It's not about how well I behave. It's not the result of my moral self-improvement projects because holiness is not a manifestation. Uh, it's not measured by, by ascending moral improvement. Holiness is relational because holiness is love. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? Uh, so let's take a look at John 15. John 15. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses for context. I'm only going to pull a few key ideas out um, this morning. But John 15, starting in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and they're thrown into a fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So Jesus lays out um, a metaphor for what makes the Christian life tick, right? He's talking to his disciples. Uh, this is shortly after the Last Supper. It is his final night. Uh, he'll be crucified a little bit. Uh, he'll be betrayed a little bit later in the evening and crucified um, the next morning. So it's all coming to a head. And over the course of this evening, he is, he is downloading all of this vital information to his disciples. And he, he uses metaphors because he wants them to stick. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll be fruitful. If you don't abide in me, you won't. So think about the metaphor, right? So if Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, what's our job? Is the, is the branch's job... Like the job description of a branch, is it be fruitful? Is that the job description? Kind of, right? Because that's what a branch is supposed to do, right? Be fruitful. And so is that what the branch is supposed to focus on? Fruit. I will produce fruit, right? Take it out of the metaphor. I will be self-controlled. I will be patient. I will forgive that rude person. I will be kind. 
I will stop doing bad things, and I will start doing good things. How's that work for the branch? Is that the job description of the branch? No, um, the job description of the branch is to be fruitful, but honestly, the way the branch is fruitful is by staying connected to the vine. The job of the branch is to stay connected to the vine. The fruit is the byproduct, not the goal. See, one of the fundamental mistakes we have made in the area of holiness is we have defined the byproduct as the goal. What do I mean by that? The root word of holiness means to be set apart. And Christians tend to define holiness, or they, they look at holiness as through the lens of what we're set apart from. We're set apart from sin. We're set apart from worldliness. We're set apart from bad things. So therefore, to grow in holiness means to grow in separation from all those bad things. If I want to be more holy, I have to stop doing those bad things and start doing the good things. That's like a branch focusing on the fruit. You know what happens to a branch that focuses on the fruit? It is no longer attached to the vine and it dies. It does not have the energy to be fruitful because it was never designed to produce fruit through its own effort. The branch's job is to stay vitally connected to the vine. And as long as the branch stays vitally connected to the vine, it will be fruitful. See, fruitfulness is the byproduct of the true job description. That metaphor obviously is meant to tell us something profound about the Christian life. If we want to be fruitful in the Christian life, we need to stay connected to the vine. That needs to be our focus. That's where we need to, to put all of our energy. That's where we need to put all of our, 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 the primary goal is not to produce the fruit. That's God's job through us, in us. Our primary goal is to stay connected to the vine. And how do we stay connected to the vine? What does that mean to stay connected to the vine? Right? Is that a whole new to-do list? I will read my Bible, I will pray, I will go to these many studies, I will have these spiritual disciplines, I, and I create a whole new list of do's and don'ts that I can white-knuckle my way through so that I can, I can do better and try harder, right? No, what does it mean to abide in the vine? Jesus tells us right there in, um, in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. See, the Father and the Son had a unique relationship in which the, the Son abided in the Father. Jesus, as a man, abided in His Father's love. What does it mean to abide in the Father's love? It means to be continually, humbly responsive. Not just aware that it exists. Not just a good theology of, of the love of God, but of a humble, responsive heart to the love of God. Jesus never had a moment on earth in which he was not profoundly aware of how deeply he was loved by his Father, of how secure he was in the love of the Father, 
of, of how his significance was anchored in the love of the Father, how he could find his deepest and truest rest in the, in the experience of the love of his Father. And Jesus says, I have abided in the love of my Father. You abide in my love. If you abide in my love, you will bear much fruit. In fact, I will make you super abundantly fruitful if you abide in my love. If you are able to keep that humble, responsive love to God. This is why it's so incredibly important that we never get over grace. That we never get to a point where we're not amazed by God's love. John, when he was writing to the churches in the book of Revelation, criticized the church in Ephesus. And his one complaint to them was, you're doing a lot of great things, but you've left your first love, and if you're not careful, it won't be long before you lose your lampstand, which was a a metaphorical way of saying that God would actually remove the, the presence of that local church. He would take that local church away because that's how important the first love was. You have left your first love. You cannot be fruitful without resting in his love. And that's the challenge. We tend to focus on the fruit instead of the vine, and we keep getting distracted by what we can do instead of what He has done. We start focusing on what, on the shoulds, right? I should do more. I should work harder. I should read my Bible more. I should pray more. I should serve more. I should give more. And because we are faithful people, we, we invest in all these things we should be doing. And after a while, we forget that it's not about what we should be doing. It's about what He's already done. We rest because we're already loved. We don't work in order to be loved. We are secure because He has already loved us, not because we might be good enough to merit that love. It's that profound and it's that simple, y'all. Holiness is the fruit of abiding in the love of Christ. And you're like, well, okay, cool. Why are we even talking? This is easy. Right? If that's all there is to it, why is the Christian life so difficult? If that's all there is to it, why is it so hard? (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because for us to abide... In the love of Christ, we have to learn to be comfortable with our helplessness. We have to learn to embrace our need, not our success, but our need. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's the catch. We hate that. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Oh, come on. Surely I can do something. 
Like, I'm not that bad off. Like, surely I can do something, right? Like, isn't that, isn't that what the sanctification is? It's, it's, it's me working with you. It's like, it's like me kind of, you know, doing really hard work and cooperating with your really hard work. And in the end, we kind of together kind of grow into, apart from me, you can do nothing. You bring nothing to the table but your need. And we hate that. We absolutely hate it. So think about the slinky. Give you a better view. What can the slinky do right now? Slinky's sitting there going, I'm not totally helpless. Surely there's something I can do. Won't you be disappointed in me if I don't at least try harder, do better? The slinky can do nothing unless I give it the energy. You bring nothing except the opportunity for God to unleash His creative playful, joyful love in your life. And when you come with your humble, helpless need, He loves to unleash His energy in your life. He loves to meet your deepest needs, to help you explore the creativity of what it means to be created in the image of God to discover your purpose, your gifts, your talents, not so that you can impress Him through their use, but so that you can learn to use them in His energy. As you delight and celebrate in His love, you are made resilient, energized. His energy is the wind that fills your sail. His energy is what gives your, your legs, your tired legs, the energy to keep going. Not your performance for him, but his performance in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But that's the very thing we hate. Oops. Sorry, I'm stepping on the dead slinky here. That's the very thing we hate. Um, Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that we're supposed to pray for is our daily bread. How many of you would really, really, really like to be in a situation where you had to pray for your daily bread? Like every single morning when you got up, there was no food. And the first thing you had to do every single morning was come helplessly before God and say, Lord, I'm hungry. Would you give me food? Would you maybe have a little bit of anxiety the night before? Would you maybe find yourself getting uptight? See, that's exactly what God did with the nation of Israel while they wandered in the wilderness, and He gave them manna every night. They had to go out every single morning and collect their daily bread. There was no, in fact, if they tried to save up enough for the next day, it would spoil, it would stink, and it would be full of worms. God was giving them an object lesson. Apart from me, you could do nothing, but I love you and I'll provide for you. See, the problem is we don't want our daily bread, we want our yearly bread. 
Lord, can you give me enough? Be gracious to me and give me enough that I no longer need you. I'll still be grateful, but you know I got a little anxiety over here. I don't do real well with uncertainty. I don't like being helpless. What do you think, Lord? Could you, could you maybe uh, secure my retirement? I don't know. 20 years in advance. I want to be, I want to know I'm set. I want to know I'm taken care of. Is that too much to ask? I don't want my daily bread. See, that's the thing is, is we want God to give us grace for today and then give us enough grace for tomorrow and the day after. And then two days from now, we want an installment on five days down from that. We, we never want to be in a place where we're helpless. Because to be helpless requires us to be completely dependent, and to be completely dependent requires us to be full of faith. We have to respond in trust, and we have to respond in love. And that's terrifying. We don't trust God that much. And we trust ourselves way more than we trust Him. You just give me a little bit of help. I don't want grace. I just need a little bit of help. Give me what I need so I can take care of myself. And then I'll do it to your glory. Not recognizing the fact that apart from him, we can do nothing. And we can do nothing to his glory that isn't done in complete and humble dependence on him. Why is this so difficult? Take a look over in uh, Galatians chapter 5. Flip over to Galatians chapter 5 real fast. Galatians 5, using one of our Bibles, you're going over to page 975, 975. Why is this such a sticking point? Why is this so difficult? Because we still have a piece of us that wants to be like God instead of humbly dependent on God, a piece called the flesh, right? Take a look at verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If the Christian life is hard for you, follower of Christ, welcome to the club. You have opposing forces at work in your own heart. There's a piece of you that still, like our first parents, wants to be independent from God. I want to be like God, not humbly dependent on God. I want God to give me the ability to be like Him. I want to be omnipotent, all-powerful. I want to be able to solve my own problems, right? I want to, I want to, I want to have enough power uh, to secure mine and my family's security, not just now, but well into the future. I want to be able to build enough safeguards around us that we're never even put at risk, right? I want to be omniscient. I want to know everything. I want to know who's going to betray me before they betray me so I can protect myself from their betrayal. I want to know who's going to be a good friend and who's going to be a bad friend. I want to know which stocks to invest in long before I can have the ability to invest in them. Why? So that I can secure my financial future. Is that too much to ask? There is a restless force within us that hates dependence on God. We crave independence, that flesh. 
and it's wrestling against follower of Christ, his Holy Spirit. Now, when you believe in Christ, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit invites you to humble dependence. The Holy Spirit is continually wooing you to respond to God's love. The Holy Spirit is continually inviting you to the table of grace and inviting you to willingly trust Him. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't come in and take you captive. He doesn't come in and use force. He doesn't come in and and He comes in with love and invites us to respond in love. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 2, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? He, he comes in and he, he woos us, he loves us, he surprises us with his grace. And when we're surprised by his grace, when we are wooed by his love, when we are convinced that God's will for us is better than our will for ourselves, that, that he is in fact a more dependable um, source of life than we are for ourselves, we walk in the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. That metaphor of walking in the Spirit means the same exact thing as abiding in the vine. It means to be deeply and humbly, relationally connected. I'm taking my cues from you. I'm taking my direction from you. I'm finding my security from you. I'm finding my significance from you. I'm finding my rest in you. And it's the love of God that gives us the courage to step away from our self-protection projects, our self-salvation projects, our self-improvement projects, and just be humbly and vulnerably and completely dependent on God for our security, our significance, our worth, and our rest. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, the warfare that's taking place isn't on the level of behavior. It's much deeper than that. It's at the level of desire. The Spirit is addressing not the fruit of our lives, but the root of our heart. Because when it talks about our desires, it talks about our loves. What do we love? What do we worship? Where do we lay ourselves? Where do we we come and, and, and pour ourselves out hoping for a return. By default, we pour ourselves out at our own talents, our own abilities, our own securities. We, we, we try to take care of ourselves. We try to surround ourselves with a life that helps us do that. The Spirit invites us, woos us, calls us to pour ourselves out in humble dependency on the love of God to find our security, our significance, our rest in Him. But He does it at the level of desire. Now, I want to point out one more critical thing here because he goes on in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. I'm not going to go through the list here. Um, That's not the point. What I want to do is focus on the works, that idea of works. The flesh works. The flesh loves to do. (laughs) It hates to rest and be helpless. It hates to wait. The flesh hates to wait because that means it's out of control. That, that means that, that, that there's someone else or something else in control and it must yield itself to that thing. The flesh is always working and it works in one of two ways. 
So the works of the flesh that are most obvious, the ones that most Christians recognize, are the works of the flesh that come in the areas of self-indulgence or self-medication, where we turn to things that are bad and we indulge in those things in order to uh, self-medicate and make certain pains to go away or, or to try to find an escape from certain anxieties or fears or to find some covering for some shame. We overindulge in things, um, anything from food to pornography to not overindulge, but indulge. We, we feast on things that are bad. That's one of the works of the flesh. But there's a whole other area of the works of the flesh, and that's in the area of self-righteousness. The works of the flesh are just as evident and just as prevalent in religious behavior. It's what the writer of Hebrews calls dead works. He calls us to repent of our dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are good works that we do for wrong reasons. The good works that we do so that we don't have to be humbly dependent on God. You see, some people are very, very religious because they're very, very afraid. They do a lot of good works because they think the best way to avoid Jesus is to be so good he doesn't notice them. Like, like, I don't need Jesus because I'm doing the right things and I'm not doing the wrong things. And as long as I'm doing those things, He's okay with me and I'm okay with Him and I don't have to be humbly, vulnerably, completely dependent. How do you know that you have dead works in your life? When you're feeling pretty self-satisfied about your spiritual progress, your religious behavior, but you don't have a desperate need to depend on God. You don't find yourself every single day coming and pleading with God for your daily bread, for your spiritual sustenance, for a renewed experience of His love, for the energy and the power in, in order to, to, to live out the reality of holiness. Dead works are just as much a work of the flesh as the more obvious sinful ones that are so easy to identify and condemn. Both of them are the results of our restless independence from God, the working of the flesh. In opposition to that is the, the walk of the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, what we find is that instead of indulging in the works of the flesh and pursuing the works of the flesh, doing things that make us independent from God, we instead rest in God. And as a result, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice the contrast between works and fruit. The flesh loves to work. The Spirit calls us to rest in order to bear fruit. We focus on our relationship with God. God produces the fruit. He changes us. He sets us free right? The fruit of the Spirit doesn't come from our effort for God. It comes from our resting in God. It doesn't come from our trying to earn the love of God. It comes from our resting in the love of God. It comes from abiding in the vine. It comes from bringing God our need with a hopeful, joyful expectancy. We don't show up with our need apologizing Lord, it's me again. I'm such a loser. 
It's me again. I failed all over again. It's me again. I am your, I, I, you know, I am your abandoned and hopeless son. It's, it's me again. And guess what? I've got a need. And I know you love me and you love my needs. And you love to make your strength known in my weakness. Guess what, Lord? I'm, gonna show, I'm showing up again and, and yeah, I did the wrong thing. And I know you still love me. And I know you delight in me. And you're going to change me. I celebrate that love and I look forward to the change. Lord, I know that, that even though I despise myself sometimes, you never despise me. Even though I get so tired of my own behavior, you are never fatigued with my weakness. To walk in the Spirit is to walk in continual, joyful, submissive responsiveness to His love. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's singular. Fruit, not fruits, plural, one fruit. A lot of commentators and, and, and theologians would argue that what that means is that the fruit of the Spirit is, in fact, love, the first thing on the list, and that everything else is a description of what flows from that, that joy is what flows from the fruit of love, and, and, and peace, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the things that flow from a heart that is bearing the fruit of love. Because when we are secure in His love, we are walking in His power. And when we're walking in His power, He does in us what we can't do for ourselves, and He produces through us what we can never produce for Him. It's the byproduct, not the goal. It is what He does in and through us, not what we do for Him. You know what that means? It means that the fruit of the Spirit is the definition of holiness. Like if you were to look for a definition of holiness, you're not going to find a better description than the fruit of the Spirit. If the fruit of the Spirit, if the, if the Holy Spirit isn't producing holiness in you, I don't know what else to call it. So what is holiness? Holiness is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It is the product of love. See, this is, it all ties together in such a beautiful way, right? What's the great command? When Jesus was asked what the great command was, what was it? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the purpose of human existence. That's the one command. If you obey that, you obey all the others. The fruit of the Spirit gives you the ability to obey that command. By resting and responding to His love, God produces within us a responding love to Him and to others. Final thing I want to drive home with this. What this means is that holiness is fundamentally relational. Holiness is not some abstract um, measurement of moral purity against which we are to compare ourselves and beat ourselves up if we fall short and come up with better self-improvement projects to try to climb up a little bit higher. Holiness is fundamentally relational. In other words, you can only grow in holiness as you grow in your relationships. And what that means is you need the church. 
you cannot be a holy Christian and be an isolated Christian. A lot of times, remember, the temptation is to think, if I can just get rid of all these people, I'll be a lot more holy. Right? If I get rid of the people who annoy me, I'll be patient. If I get rid of the people who are rude, I'll be kind, I'll be gentle. If I get rid of, of the people who tempt me to become tribal and join them in their, in their grumbling, I'll have more self-control. See, we start identifying the things out there as the solution to our challenges instead of the power in here. You don't need a new set of circumstances in order to be holy. You need a new power in your current circumstances. And that means you need the relationships around you to grow in grace. You need the people who are going to annoy you. You need the people who are going to challenge you. You need the people who vote for a different candidate than you do, who have different political and ideological convictions than you do. You need those people because they're part of the body of Christ. Like, think about that metaphor. Christ is the head, we are the body. What part of the body do you not need? Like, which part of your body are you ready right now to say, get rid of it? You need your body to be whole. You need other believers to be holy. And it's not just the annoying ones. It's the ones that are going to remind you of who you are in Christ. This week, I had some struggles. I, I had a rough week in some ways. There were some people I didn't like. There were some people I was having a hard time forgiving. You know what helped me through that? I didn't white-knuckle my way through that because that doesn't work for me. I try to white-knuckle my way through that, and maybe I don't say the bad thing, but I sure say it in the back of my mind. And pretty soon I'm churning in anger and frustration and bitterness and and revenge fantasies and all that stuff, right? You can't white-knuckle your way into holiness. You know how I got there? People who love God and people who love me spoke life into my heart. They reminded me of the love of God. They called me in their love to once again experience His love. Listen, y'all, there's no such thing as a disembodied love of God. We have this really weird thing sometimes where we're like, you know what, you need to have your deepest needs met in your relationship with God. And if you have your deepest needs met in your relationship with God, you won't need anything outside of that. You cannot have your deepest human needs met in a relationship with a disembodied God. You're like, dude, that's heresy. No, it's not. It's reality. You know why? Because God doesn't relate to us in a disembodied way. He relates to us in the body in the community of God's people. God is present. We are called the temple of the living God, the body of Christ. You want to have your deepest needs met in your relationship with God, but you will have those needs met in your relationship with other people because God meets you in them, in their look, in their touch, in their words in the process of of learning to be vulnerable 
and honoring other people's vulnerability and learning to apologize when you're stupid and you say bad things that you shouldn't have said and learning to approach others and say, you know what, you really hurt me and I want to value you and I want to love you, but right now I'm having a hard time because there's a lot of hurt that's between us because of what you said or what you did and learning to have healthy conversations that allow you to pursue the bond of peace, that allow you to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And it is only the love of God that equips us to have the courage and the strength to continually pursue those connections with others. See, it is God at work in the body that delivers us into the experience of holiness. And holiness, once again, is the vibrancy and the resiliency and the joy of life. Followers of Christ, we need each other. That's why we're taking this season to reboot our community groups. It's why we are investing in our community group leaders to help refill their tanks and, and help them get recentered on what's truly important in community and, and how we help each other um, grow in grace and in relationship with one another. We're helping our community group leaders rediscover what it means to lead from a place of neediness, humility, and weakness instead of just simply trying to replicate their strengths or their perceived strengths in the lives of others. We're, we're trying to help them create transformative discipleship communities, which is one I'm, why I'm asking you to continue to pray. Pray for them as we continue. We're going to meet again tonight. We started last week. We're going to meet again tonight, and uh, we're going to continue this process of investing in them. And two, commit to being in community. Commit to being vitally connected to other believers so that you can grow in holiness, so that you can grow in your experience of the fruit of the Spirit, and you can be restored to your resiliency. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer, and then we'll share communion, and, um, and we'll go from there. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of love. Lord, your word describes you as holy, holy, holy but you reveal to us that you are the essence of love. It is your love that makes you holy. You are the embodiment, the experience, the eternal experience of knowing and being known, loving and being loved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is over the, in the overflow of that love and the overflow of that experience you have created us to also be holy. To respond to your love and to grow in love. Our love for you and our love for one another. To be set free from the flesh. Our restless, exhausting need to do and to work and to perform and to improve. And learn how to just abide Father, I pray for my friends that are having a hard time hearing your invitation this morning. Those that are locked up in fear, they're not sure they can trust you. Those that are locked up in shame, they're not sure you love them because you know them and the things they have hidden. Those that are locked up 
in their need to prove themselves and their fear of letting all of that go and just letting you be their security. Spirit, will you invite them to your love? Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. What an incredible treasure, what an incredible feast they're being invited to. That they might lay their deadly doings down, that they might repent of their dead works, they might walk away from their self-imposed prisons and be set free into playful, delightful, rejuvenating, experience of your love. Spirit, you're the one that can do this. And we ask you to be here to bless. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.